It's time for Northwestern Outdoors Radio, the show focusing on fishing, hunting, outdoor recreation, destinations, and conservation in the region where you live and play. Northwestern Outdoors is brought to you by Max Lure Company, Sportsman's Warehouse, and Wallowa County. And now, let's see what's going on in the field and on the water with your host, John Cruz. We lost a good one already this year, and no, I'm not talking about Betty White. I'm talking about Walleye Willie Ross, a longtime fishing guide out of the Dalles, Oregon. I got to see Willie and his wife Sheila every year at the sportsman shows, as well as at fish camp in September, and even got the chance to go fishing with this really talented guide and a very nice man who not only loved fishing, but also music, a love he shared with us at fish camp from time to time. Unfortunately, Sheila died about two and a half years ago after a long and valiant battle with cancer, and Willie clearly struggled to go on. Willie was found dead of natural causes at his home during that coal spell we had recently. His stepson, outdoors writer Jason Brooks, believes Willie died of a broken heart. And you know what? I think he's right. Rest in peace, Willie. You are with Sheila again now, and I know you're both in a better place. This week on Northwestern Outdoors Radio, we've got all sorts of interesting topics and guests for you. In just a few minutes, Leonard Krug, the president of the Oregon Anglers Alliance, will join us to talk about how this relatively new organization is fighting back against groups that want to close fish hatcheries and halt the retention of wild steelhead in southwest Oregon, the one place in the Pacific Northwest they are actually healthy. This organization is also working to put people who support fishing and hunting on the Oregon State Fish and Wildlife Commission, something folks in Washington State might want to pay attention to. After we talk to Leonard, we'll get to chat again with Bob Loomis from Max Lure. Winter is prime time for big lake trout, and Bob is actually recommending downsizing your presentation to get them to strike. Good stuff you won't want to miss. From there, we head to the Washington State University, home of the Cougars, and also home to a great school of veterinary medicine that takes in not only domestic animals, but wild birds and mammals for treatment and rehabilitation. Marcy Logsdon from WSU will tell you more about that. Staying on the subject of cougars, our final guest of the day has got a great hunting story to share. His name is Brad Fenson, and he's an outdoors media professional in Canada who bagged the biggest mountain lion I have ever seen harvested. Not only that, but he did it with a crossbow. You'll definitely want to stick around to hear the details about this snowy hunt of this big cat in Alberta. Throw in news about sportsman shows going on now and coming up quick, as well as your Sportsman's Warehouse Trivia Question of the Week. And as usual, we've got a jam-packed hour of the outdoors coming your way. So let's get it started in earnest as we do every week with another edition of Sportsman Spotlight. Recovering America's Wildlife Act. David Sparks, Sportsman Spotlight. I got this in my email. Good morning, David. I wanted to let you know that the bipartisan Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which would invest nearly $1.4 billion annually in proactive efforts to help wildlife at risk, is set for markup and vote in the U.S. House Natural Resources Committee. This will likely happen on Wednesday, January 19th. The bill has achieved a rare level of bipartisan support. Isn't that amazing? Bipartisan. Like the Great American Outdoors Act, it has enthusiastic backers among progressives and conservatives, with 32 co-sponsors in the Senate and 140 in the House. As Senators Martin Heinrich and Roy Blunt wrote in a recent Fox News opinion piece, 
Without enough resources, state and tribal wildlife agencies have been forced to pick and choose which species are worth saving instead of doing the proactive work that is necessary to maintain healthy wildlife populations on the front end. They have been forced into using reactive emergency room measures to rescue species after they are listed as threatened or endangered. Quick, call your senator or your congressman and vote in your support. Hope you enjoyed Sportsman Spotlight. I'm David Sparks. See you next time. You know, for most people, the Christmas season is busy for a couple weeks out of the year. But when you grow Christmas trees for a living, you're busy all year long. That's why it's good to know you can confidently cross one thing off your to-do list by choosing Mission Herbicides. Mission gives Christmas tree producers a powerful new tool for effective broad-spectrum weed control. Applied either pre-emergence or post-emergence, Mission provides long-lasting control of even the tough weeds like wild carrot, Carolina geranium, and prickly lettuce, even the glyphosate-resistant populations. And because Mission is labeled for both ground and aerial application methods, producers can control tough grass, broadleaf, and sedge weeds without sacrificing convenience. So this year, trust Mission Herbicide to provide you the year-round weed control you need to stay ahead. Mission Herbicide is exclusively available from Helena Agri Enterprises and Tenco's member companies. Always read and follow label directions. Enjoy a meal of wild Alaskan seafood delivered right to your door. CNC offers premium quality wild Alaskan fish and shellfish to include Copper River King and Silver Salmon, Halibut, Black Cod, King Crab, and of course, Copper River Sockeye Salmon. Order it blast frozen or smoked and experience a slice of Alaska for a special meal you won't forget. Buy your seafood now at CNC.com. That's S-E-N-A-S-E-A, CNC.com. The Dalles in Oregon is your base camp for fishing fun. Reel in big salmon, tangle with steelhead, bass, and walleye, or wrestle a monster sturgeon to the boat. After the day is done, you'll find a variety of lodging options around town. Plan your fishing getaway today at explorethedalles.com. That's explorethedalles.com. You're back in with Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. We've got Leonard Krug on the line. He is the president of the Oregon Anglers Alliance. This is a fairly new nonprofit that is formed in Oregon. Their major concerns are protecting our fisheries, especially our cold water fisheries. Leonard, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about the Oregon Anglers Alliance? You bet. You know, it's been uh, just about two years ago now. A group of us met at an Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife Commission hearing to testify on some fisheries issues and met there and got to talking about how we needed a, a united voice to try and instill a sense of balance in our fisheries management strategies. There seems to be an opposing force or opposing groups that are interested in opposing hatcheries and harvest of wild fish also and unnecessarily, I might add. There's never been a group like this to come to the table and push back on these groups until now. So we spawned the Oregon Anglers Alliance shortly thereafter. As of next month, we will officially have been in business for two years. When you're talking uh, about some of these groups that are anti-hatchery and anti-harvest, I presume you're talking about the Native Fish Society and maybe the Wild Fish Conservancy? 
Yes, Trout Unlimited, David Moskowitz with a conservation angler. There's a lot of them, and they seem to discover the money from across the country because they, quite frankly, use their opinion to lure in the uninformed public and ask them what it'd be like to have rivers without any hatchery presence and any harvest of wild fish on them. And I can tell you, We've got plenty of evidence of that. There's a river just 10 miles down the road here, just across the California line, where that's been that way for almost 20 years now. And interestingly enough, they've finally gotten back to they're going to start releasing winter steelhead upstream in that river again. They've been releasing them about a mile from tidewater, very few. but So they're going to increase their releases of hatchery fish again. And they have plans to instate some sustainable limited harvest of wild winter steelhead also. So they're just looking at Oregon, wondering uh, what's going on up here, because we've been, uh, frankly, on the ropes with these organized groups. They've amassed a lot of wealth and influence over the last four decades that they've been at work. And like I say, the Oregon Anglers Alliance now has uh, brought a voice. We have over 65,000 Concerned citizens as members, I've got to uh, give some kudos to England Marine Stores. They've been one of our biggest supporters and helped us get off the ground here. We've established a very close relationship with Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. We have a place at the table. We uh, are working on getting a, a better seat at the governor's natural resources office. We're working with our electeds and legislators and uh, really making some changes. And there's some, some winds of change coming, some very positive winds of change coming. Well, Leonard, let me... As, sure, go ahead. Yeah, we're getting a little long-winded here, Leonard, so I need to change subjects. Uh, I do need to touch on one thing, though. You know, I've had David Moskowitz on the show. It was quite some time ago, and I've definitely had people from Trout Unlimited, and they would tell you they are not completely against hatcheries in all situations or harvest in all situations, though they certainly, you are correct, do lean that way in a lot of situations. I do want to talk about your stance on fish hatcheries for salmon and steelhead. You're a big believer in them, but I presume you're not a big believer in the way they were run in the past back in the 70s where it was a Johnny Appleseed sort of thing where one strain of salmon or steelhead was used to stock streams all over the state. Tell me a little bit about how you feel about hatcheries and how they should be run. Well, that's an interesting question because looking back that far, we had hatchery fish going every different direction in the state. We had people raising and rearing fish in their backyards mostly releasing them in the same streams or basins that they were reared in, but not always. And even the state was participatory in taking these hatchery fish and, and moving them out of basin and from one river up, even on the north coast and down here to the south coast, mixing and matching. But about 1982, I believe the year is, the Salmon Trout Enhancement Program was born for Oregon, and the state had a lot more of that under their control. So that ceased to exist anymore as far as out-of-basin stocks and saturating the, the streams with them. Getting back to hatcheries, you definitely did a good job of talking about how it was in the past. Again, you support hatchery operations in the present. How are they run now? What's different now from then? And why are they critical for our fisheries? Right now, we've gone from a paradigm of you know years ago, believing that hatchery fish should be everywhere, the more the better, and the pendulum has swung completely the opposite way, where it's uh, very biased against hatchery presence at all. So now we're 
seen some reform in that. We need to identify locations that we can introduce hatchery fish to to maximize hatchery fish to complement our wild fish. We need to restore and enhance our wild fish populations as much as possible. That's what I was saying earlier, trying to say is that people talk about what is the carrying capacity of these streams for wild fish. No one really has an answer for that because since we began keeping records, we've had hatchery fish, so many hatchery fish in the streams. So I believe that we falsely inflated the numbers of our salmonids in these streams. And if we were to take off all hatchery fish, it'd be pretty thin for anglers, commercial and recreational. Let's talk about wild steelhead harvest real quick, Leonard. In Washington State on the Olympic Peninsula in the South Coast, it's awful, the returns. We're seeing horrible returns up the Columbia and Snake Rivers as well this year, the lowest ever, I think, since 1938 when they started keeping track. But I understand the south coast of Oregon still has some healthy wild steelhead runs, and your organization supports a continued take of wild steelhead. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And I don't think you can compare these populations with other populations. You know, just because the Atlantic salmon is having problems doesn't mean you should eliminate all salmon harvest across the continent. I'd like to say about the South Coast, you can't compare these streams to other rivers because we don't have any commercial fisheries for these fish. We don't have dams. We don't have any major habitat issues here. We don't have tribal fisheries or ocean fisheries. And we only have on this South Coast area one small, very modest hatchery program for steelhead. And I don't think people in Washington state, unless they've been here or other parts of the country, can really perceive what this area is like. It's so wild. We uh, hardly have roads here. This area that we're in has one road north and south to get out of here. You've got to drive about an hour south to take the cut across to get anywhere east and about two hours to to the north to drive east to get out of here. So we don't have freeways. We hardly have roads up in the mountains. Very rugged, very uh, inaccessible. I want to touch on one more thing, Leonard. Your organization has been working hard to put science-driven individuals who actually support hunting and fishing on the State Fish and Wildlife Commission. This is something we don't have any organized support in really doing in Washington State, and we're suffering the consequences. You just had a big victory in this, though, didn't you? We absolutely did. We petitioned the governor's office to follow the statutes and follow the protocol to replace a long time term expired. He was on there for nine and a half years and his term had been expired for a year and a half. Now, statute dictates that the governor nominate someone before the expiration of that term and get them appointed in a timely manner. So this went on and on. And quite frankly, this individual was not a sportsman and sportswomen's friend He uh, continually voted against hatcheries and any sustainable harvest for our fish and wildlife resources. So that was a a big win for us. We've got a replacement in there now who's batting for the good guys, so to speak. And I understand that's Dr. Leslie King. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. She believes in our traditional model of conservation, what we need to see in there. 
All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that, Leonard. We are out of time. But, folks, if you want to find out more about the Oregon Anglers Alliance, I would encourage you to go to their website. It's OregonAnglersAlliance.org. That's OregonAnglersAlliance.org. And perhaps anglers in Washington State should take a look at some of the power that this organization is flexing after just two years as a nonprofit. Uh, We might need something like this up in Washington State, too. Leonard, thanks for sharing this with us today on Northwestern Outdoors Radio. Thank you, John. From a bull elk ripping a bugle across the valley to wing beats on a duck marsh, public lands and waters are integral to our outdoor heritage. Become a member of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and stand up for our public lands and waters. Visit backcountryhunters.org today. with more of the great outdoors on Northwestern Outdoors Radio with John Cruz. It's time for another extended Max Minute brought to you every week by Max Lure. With us again, Bob Lubis. Bob, great to have you back. Thanks, John. Let's talk lake trout. This is a time of year where anglers are after the real big ones, especially at places like Washington's Lake Chelan or maybe in the North Idaho Panhandle at lakes like Priest Lake and Lake Pend How would you go about targeting a big lake trout this time of year? Well, you know, one of my favorite fishing tools to fish for lake trout is a squitter and a small dodger. I use the uh, cha-cha two-inch floating squid that we use. It's absolutely one of my favorite all-around tools to catch lakers. And then I use the small four-inch double-D dodger. And it works absolutely phenomenal because of the fact that you're fishing so close to the bottom. You're not fishing with a big dodger, so you're not hanging up as much. And you're still getting that attraction out of it and a little bit of movement on your bait. I was going to ask you about why the small dodger versus the big one. You answered that question. But the squitter that you're using there is also a small presentation. Are we downsizing for big fish here? Pretty much. Like I said, it's one of my favorite lures to use for lake trout, and that includes even big fish, is that two-inch squitter with a smile blade on top of it. It floats, it's got a pill float in it, and it adds to the whole attraction and movement. Any particular colors you favor during the winter months? My number one color is the uh, glow white. There you go, folks. Consider the cha-cha squitter in the two-inch side and a four-inch double-D dodger. The next time you're targeting lake trout here in the greater northwest, you might just hook into a big one with some very small gear. Wedding rings? I've had as many as I've got fingers on my hands. I started off with the Wedding Ring Classic, of course. That smooth blade from Indiana. That beaded body. The sharp hook. We caught a lot of trout together over the years, but then that patented smile blade wedding ring, well, let's just say it took my fancy, along with the trout and the kokanee. Now I'm going through this new age sort of phase. You might say I'm hooked on the new high UV colored wedding rings and I'm catching more fish than ever. So yeah, I've got a whole bunch of wedding rings. You should get some too. Don't look at the jewelry store though. These wedding ring spinners are from Max Lure and you'll find them at the sporting goods store near you or online at maxlure.com. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter, full of the gear you need to succeed this hunting season. Firearms, ammo, archery equipment, decoys, clothing, boots, and more. You'll find it all at Sportsman's Warehouse. Better still, the knowledgeable staff can help you with tips to help you bag a trophy or a limit. 
Find a location near you or shop online today at sportsmans.com. Ducks Unlimited is the leading waterfowl and wetlands conservation organization in the world. Here in Idaho, we've lost nearly 76% of our wetlands. Ducks Unlimited is working to stop that loss. In Idaho alone, DU has restored and conserved over 27,000 acres of wetlands. Learn more about the benefits of wetlands and what Ducks Unlimited is doing for Idaho's future. Visit ducks.org Idaho. Welcome back. You're listening to Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz, and we've got Marcy Logston on the line. She's an assistant professor at the Washington State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Marcy, welcome to the show, and go Cougs! Thank you so much for having me. Go Cougs! Let's talk a little bit about Washington State University. I live in the Wenatchee Valley in central Washington, and just about every single vet here in the valley graduated from Washington State University and proudly displays their certificate in their clinics. But I didn't know that Washington State University also operated a raptor rehab center and treats mammals, too, in terms of wildlife. We do. We've been treating wildlife mostly from the surrounding area, but sometimes we get them from quite a ways out for at least the last 40 years or so. I know for sure that they were starting to take the, at least the raptors in back in 1981. So it's been a pretty strong community-based program here for quite a while. Let's talk about treating mammals. I actually didn't really know anybody was doing that. I thought if a deer or a bear was injured, generally they were kind of on their own. Yeah, it definitely depends on the situation. There are certain animals that do better in a, in a rehab setting than others, but generally speaking, we will treat any type of native wildlife to the area. We are not really set up to do things like bears long-term, but we have definitely taken in some cubs and done a little bit of triage and then transferred them to other wildlife centers that do have the outdoor housing and, and space for them once they get larger, things like that. But yeah, we treat all sorts of native ones. Obviously, we get a lot of bunnies and a lot of squirrels, but we get the occasional badger or right now we have a beaver that's going to be here with us for the winter. So we get a bit of variety. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) It's a bit of variety. All right. Well, let's talk about this new program you have where you're using students to help with a a 24-7 service specializing in wildlife veterinary medicine. Yeah, so the wildlife program has been based out of the veterinary teaching hospital since it began, and we are licensed wildlife rehabilitators both through the state of Washington, and then also we have our federal permits so that we can do things like migratory birds. Um, And we have always allowed folks to bring wildlife in 24 hours a day, taking advantage of the fact that WSU has a wonderful 24-hour emergency service here on campus for um, for pet animals. And so it used to be that it wasn't a big deal for the interns and the veterinarians and the the fourth-year veterinary students who are on emergency, you know, to help out taking in wildlife on occasion. But the the demand for veterinary services has just gone up and up and up. And so our wonderful emergency service, as great as they are, you know, they're, they're starting to get a little bit taxed when it comes to time. And we don't ever want to take care away from somebody's pet because a wild animal has come through the door. And so we were trying to kind of brainstorm ideas of how we could help work around this. And one of my goals in the last couple of years has been to try and get more involvement from the younger veterinary students. So the 
first through third year veterinary students. And so we, you know, we kind of put out, we had like a little introductory meeting to see if folks would be interested and we got just an overwhelming response. We've had over 60 students that are first through third year veterinary students who were just thrilled at the opportunity to get some hands-on patient care before entering their clinical year. So, So that's just been absolutely wonderful. And so what they're going to do is with, you know, with constant guidance from myself and from the other doctor on our service, you know, so they're not feeling like they're abandoned, they're going to help do these after-hour intakes, do initial triage, do some stabilization, you know, and meet the finders, talk to them, and go from there. Let's talk a little bit about, well, I guess you should say the consumer and Mm -hmm. what they should do when they find wildlife. So the region you service is essentially eastern Washington, probably northeast Oregon and, and northern Idaho. If somebody finds an injured raptor or an injured mammal, what should they do in terms of trying to get help from Wazoo? The first thing that we recommend is whenever possible, please give us a call before bringing wildlife in. One, it helps us be prepared if they do end up coming in. And two, that also helps us because there are certain situations where a wild animal in the wild might look injured or might be easier to approach than usual, but doesn't necessarily need intervention. The big example, of course, is come springtime. There are situations where babies are left alone intentionally by the mother, but can sometimes look orphaned. And we don't expect the general population to know the difference between that at a glance. Like I've been doing this for years and I still don't always get it right. And so we're asking folks to please call first because if it is one of those situations, we can talk the finder through what to do and, and hopefully leave as many wild animals in the wild as we possibly can while still providing help to those ones who definitely need it. And so we're still using the main phone number to the veterinary teaching hospital at the moment. That's the 509-335-0711. And that line during the day, it'll just come back to our exotics and wildlife department here. At night, it'll go through our answering service and then come to either my or somebody else who's manning the, what we're calling our wildlife hotline, um, so that we can, again, help kind of talk people through that. You're listening to Northwestern Outdoors Radio. We're talking to Marcy Logston. She's with the Washington State University College of Veterinary Medicine, specializing in raptor rehabilitation and wildlife care. And that emergency number again, it's 509-335-0711. That's 509 509- Three three five zero seven one one, and yes, we'll give that out one more time before we end this interview. But here's another question for you. I always thought that when you found wildlife, the first call should be to your state fish and wildlife agency and get a game warden out there to kind of make an assessment of the situation. And there are definitely some situations where that is the correct approach, and we, we definitely direct people in that direction if the situation warrants, especially if you think that there's any sort of danger to people in the area. So when we're talking about some of our larger native mammals especially, so if you do come across something like an injured bear or an injured moose or something along those lines, unfortunately, the state wildlife agencies don't really actually receive much of any funding to help with injured animals. Now, they oftentimes do because they are the conservation officers who are doing the field work here, for, especially for Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, they're absolutely wonderful folks, and we work with them very closely. A lot of times they will provide transport for us if there's injured animals, but they're also very, you know, just like everybody else right now, they're, they're kind of being pushed to the limit as well. And so a lot of times a local rehabber can give you a, a pretty good feel right away as to whether or not something needs to be done and whether or not the finder can do that safely. And if the animal does need to end up coming in someplace, it is going to be to a licensed wildlife rehabber that that animal is going to go to, whether that's us or a different facility. The Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife regulates and licenses wildlife rehabbers, but they don't actually perform any rehab duties themselves. 
Gotcha. One more question for you. Let's say somebody calls your number and the intake person says, yes, this is a good candidate. We want you to bring him in. You don't do the transport. The person that finds the animal has to bring it to you. What's some advice you would give people who are transporting injured birds or other wildlife to your facility? Yeah, generally speaking, we don't provide consistent transportation right now. Another reason we recommend having folks call first is that we do, you know, a lot of us have friends and things in the area who have done this a time or two. And so if transportation is going to be a deal breaker, we sometimes have ways to work around that. And we are actually in talks right now with the Washington Wildlife Rehabilitation Association to see if we could get a volunteer network up here running, especially in eastern Washington, where, you know, we are sometimes the closest rehab center for three or four hours. And we know that that can be a burden on folks, but you're, you're definitely right and that the majority of the time we are counting on these good Samaritans to go one extra step and help get these animals to us. Um, it definitely depends on what kind of animal it is, the types of safety precautions that need to be taken to help transport it in a manner that's that's calm and safe for the animal and also safe for the people. Generally speaking, you know, we, we recommend a lot of things like towels and cardboard boxes. They tend to be wonderful for, for containing injured animals and also help keep them nice and, and calm and quiet if they're not seeing a lot of activity and a lot of people, you know, staring at them the whole time. But that's another thing that if folks call first, we can help talk them through if there's any species-specific concerns. Because obviously, you know, transporting a baby robin is going to be really different than transporting a bald eagle. So Very, very true. All right, on that note, we've got to go. But one more time with that number for the Washington State University Veterinary Teaching Hospital that also takes care of raptors and mammals and other wildlife. The number again is 509-335-0711. That's 509-335-0711. One, one. Marcy, thank you for the work you and everybody there at Wazoo does to help our wildlife. It's truly appreciated. Well, thank you so much for having me. This portion of the show is brought to you by our friends at Cena Sea Seafoods. That's the company that delivers delicious, wild-caught Alaskan seafood right to your door. Everything from copper river sockeye salmon to halibut to sablefish and even king crab legs. Better still, they are offering a 10% discount to our listeners. If you want to take advantage of that, go to SinaSea.com. That's S-E-N-A-S-E-A, SinaSea.com, and put in the promo code OUTDOORSRADIO. Once you do that, you get 10% off your entire order. The website again, SinaSea.com, and the promo code for 10% off, OUTDOORSRADIO. You're back in with Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Our next stop is Alberta, Canada. We're talking to Brad Fenson. He's retired from the Alberta Fish and Game Association. He's a full-time outdoors media professional. And I was scrolling along on Facebook and found Brad with what looked to be about the biggest mountain lion I've ever seen harvested. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to hear about this mountain lion. That was one heck of an animal. How big was it? And if you have any idea, how old was it? Well, I can give you some ballparks. The cat hadn't eaten in at least three days. It had an empty system, and it still weighed over 165 pounds, which is big 
for a cougar or mountain lion. People call them different things in different jurisdictions. But, you know, if he had just eaten, he would have been over 200 pounds. He was a big boy, and I, I was actually glad that he was empty because it was all I could do to hold him up. They do have a long tail on him, so nose to tail was well over 10 feet. And he had paws that were bigger than my hand. So everything about him was impressive. <laughs> have you ever harvested a mountain lion that big before? No, not that big. I have harvested one other cat. It was many years ago, and I was hunting on private ground. And basically, the rule from the landowner was if you treat a cat, you need to harvest it. So we did. And I've waited probably close to two decades to do this again, but I only wanted to do it if I could find a big cat. Let's talk a little bit about cougar hunting in Alberta versus cougar hunting here in the northwestern part of the United States. Now, in Oregon and in Washington, you're not allowed to use hounds. You're certainly not allowed to use bait. What are the hunting rules in Alberta and how are cougars managed there? Well, we have an extensive cougar management plan that's been in place for years to protect the cats, mostly. We have a good cat population and in the mountains, foothills, and extending through some of the boreal forest on the west side especially, there's cougar management zones where houndsmen are allowed to use their dogs to cut and chase tracks. So each of those zones has a quota for females and for males. And when that quota is reached, the zone is shut down. So, you know, when I harvested my cat that evening, when I got home, I had to email my information in to update the quota listing. Most townsmen log on every evening and again in the morning and check. And it's like, okay, this zone is still open. Let's go. And that's exactly what happened. You know, we found some tracks, made sure the zone was open, and out we went. So year to year, you never know. Some of the really productive zones can close on the first or second day of the season. Uh, this was a full month into the season, and it's just really well designed to protect the stability of the population and the cats overall. Well, I'm glad to hear they're using some sound wildlife science to manage cougars in Alberta. One other thing I want to talk about here is how you took this mountain lion wasn't with a rifle at all, was it? No, I wanted to do it with my archery equipment, and I actually had a, a crossbow with me. That's amazing. I have actually never even heard of a person taking a cougar with a crossbow, let alone a cougar of this size. Tell me more about the crossbow you're using and the arrows, too. I had the new 10-point uh, Nitro 505. It's a, an extremely fast bow, which gives a hunter lots of options. You don't need all of that speed, but you can use a heavier arrow or a full metal jacket and a heavier broadhead, which gives you better kinetic energy and penetration. The broadhead I used for the hunt was actually a, a Sever 1.5, and I chose that because it's got the smallest cutting diameter of the broadheads that I use. I wanted to minimize damage on the cat, and I knew that it would do a very clean and effective job in terms of harvesting the cat quickly. What so, are the advantages or disadvantages of a crossbow over a compound bow? You know, that's a really good question, John. For me, it was pretty easy. Like A lot of times these cats get up so high in the tree that you're looking at extremely steep angles. The cat I shot was at about a 72-degree angle, so you're shooting almost straight up. Wow. If you have a vertical bow, you need to keep your torso square to that target, so you need to bend at the hips, bend your back as you draw the bow to stay parallel to the target, which is your third axis adjustment. That can be very difficult on targets that are high up in the tree. And I've got friends that have taken them with regular archery gear. And what they normally do is pull a target up into a tree, you know, get it up there 15 yards, and then they practice shooting the target. Because if you don't make the third axis adjustment, you're not 
going to be on target. So taking the crossbow took that element out, but I did still practice shooting those deep angles at home. I used shooting sticks to make sure I was very steady, and it paid off. Where the cat was, I had a very small window of opportunity to sneak an arrow up through all the limbs of the other trees it was around, and, you know, practice and good equipment made everything come together in the end, and we harvested the cat. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Northwestern Outdoors Radio. We're talking to Brad Fenson. He's an outdoors media professional who's based in Alberta, Canada, and he begged about the biggest mountain lion I've ever seen anybody beg. Uh, Incredible photo if you check out his Facebook page. Let's talk about the hunt itself. You were with an outfitter. Tell us about the hunt from start to finish. Well, I actually started the hunt 14 months previously with uh, Kelly Morton hunting. Kelly's got a really good reputation in our neck of the woods for harvesting big cats. For a matter of fact, he just won't put his dogs on a track that doesn't measure up to, he knows before you run it that it's going to be a good cat. And I respected that. That's what I was looking for. I didn't want to harvest a cougar. I wanted a big male. And you quickly learn the the lingo. It's like, are you available to go cutting this week? That means you're traveling around trying to cut cat tracks. And when you find them, you get out and you measure that back pad. And it's got to be at least two and three-eighths inches, if not bigger, before it's even considered. The cat that I was hunting, I believe you could put a two and three quarter inch shotgun shell in that pad and still see the edges of the pad in the imprint. So finding the right track is imperative and it's not like we didn't find cougar tracks. He actually uses a team of guys. If you've ever been around houndsmen or cat hunters, I'll call it a, a good disease. It's an addiction. They can't wait to go again. Once is never enough. It's the excitement of the dogs and trying to freshen up tracks and getting on the chase and putting it all together is so addictive that Kelly's got a team of guys that love to show up and go find tracks and just be involved in the hunt. So we had guys searching a huge area probably three or four different cougar management zones. There's people driving around looking for tracks. I spent time out there with some of the guys looking, and we had some terrible weather in December. I don't know what you guys had down in Oregon, but we had wind chills that were between minus 40 and minus 50, and it seemed to snow regularly, and any fresh tracks were quickly covered up with fresh snow, and it just kept accumulating. So we had very little opportunity where we could get out, but... It was a saving grace because it meant a lot of those cougar management zones didn't close because nobody else was taking cats out of them as well. So I got a call on uh, New Year's Day. The boys had been out looking for tracks and found a whopper. So they said, can you be here first thing in the morning? Dropped everything, made plans, organized gear. We'd had a short reprieve in the weather. It had actually warmed up one day. That's when the boys got out, found the tracks. There was fresh snow, blue skies. Everything was good. So headed out the next morning and uh, well before daylight, and they had already been at work freshening up the track. They'd chased the track for over five miles before they finally felt that it was fresh and ready to go, and things happened fast. I got there, was introduced to everyone, and off we went. Amazing. So the dogs treed the cougar. You got there for a shot. I presume it was a one shot and a kill? Yeah, it it wasn't quite that simple. Like We put the the dogs on the track, and an old cat like that, he might have been chased before. It was a a a three-and-a-half-hour run, so the snow was knee-deep. Some places was up to the middle of my thigh. We probably crossed 150 deadfalls that the cat just walked down the top of them or leaped over them like they were nothing. So it was no easy task, 
but it made it an adventure. I don't think I'd want to just jump out of the truck, follow the dogs for 15 minutes, and be on the cats. So it was a long chase, deep snow, navigating through deadfall, getting a glimpse of what is in a cat's life. I believe the big cat we were chasing was a moose expert. There were very few deer tracks, and we only saw one deer track. So the moose were quite thick right there, and I think that's what the cat was hunting. Looking at some of the, the science behind these cats, a lot of them are specialists, and once they learn how to kill an elk or a deer or a moose efficiently, they'll walk right by other animals to do it because it's their favorite or they've, you know, they just got it figured out. But the big cat we were on was a moose hunter, and it was nice to run into those moose tracks because they actually cut a trail through that deep snow. It made it a little bit easier, but... Uh, yeah, we went in circles, to, to put it mildly. The, the cat was smart. The dogs would get on him. He'd give the dogs a slip. The dogs would circle back around, pick up the scent, and get back on him. So we were following with the uh, GPS and the collars on the dogs, and we see where the dogs chased it up and around the lake and down the far shoreline, did a big circle. Uh, Fifteen minutes later, the dogs were back on him. The cat gave him the slip again. The dogs circled back. Of course, some of the dogs we have have been doing this for years. They're experienced, and they just naturally know. They have to circle around pick up that scent, get back on it. And the long and the short of it, about three and a half hours after we started, we were standing under the, the cat. He was probably 20, 22 yards up in a big tree. Fascinating story. Incredible hunt. We are out of time. But before we go one more time with the outfitter, if you know the website, I'd love to steer people to that too. Yeah, it's uh, Kelly Morton Hunting. So just kellymortonhunting.com. That's kellymortonhunting.com if you want to get into a big, big cougar in Alberta. And you just heard the story of an incredible hunt from Brad Fenson, who bagged the biggest cougar I've ever seen harvested. Brad, thanks so much for sharing this story with our listeners today on Northwestern Outdoors Radio. You're welcome, John. Thank you. Show season is back in the Pacific Northwest, and we've got several you won't want to miss coming up. This includes the Portland Boat Show at the Expo Center January 12th through the 16th. If you're in the market for an RV, you'll want to be at the Tacoma RV Show at the Tacoma Dome from January 20th through the 23rd. And then we've got the Washington Sportsman Show. It's at the fairgrounds in Puyallup. It's taking place a new date this year, February 2nd through the 6th. And don't forget, the biggest of them all, the second biggest in the entire nation, the Pacific Northwest Sportsman Show at the Expo Center in Portland, February 16th through the 20th. On top of that, we've also got the Central Oregon Sportsman Show with acres and acres of RVs on display March 10th through the 13th at the Deschutes County Fairgrounds in Redmond. Find out more about all of these great shows and make plans to attend now at otshows.com. That's OT Shows for O'Loughlin Trade Shows. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter and has what you need as a hunter, angler, hiker, paddler, camper, and outdoors enthusiast. They also carry an extensive assortment of firearms and ammunition you simply can't find anymore at many big box stores. On top of that, their knowledgeable staff is here to help you purchase the right gear so you can get the most out of your outdoor experience. Visit your local Sportsman's Warehouse store today or shop online anytime at sportsmans.com. We've got time for one more shot of Northwestern Outdoors Radio with John Cruz. 
I'm glad you're back. There's a couple of shows I want to tell you about that are going on this weekend. One of them is the Tacoma RV Show. That one's going off in the Tacoma Dome. runs through Sunday. The other show is in the Tri-Cities at the Hapo Center in Pasco. That would be the Tri-Cities Sportsman Show, also running through Sunday and always a great show to attend. As for me, the first show I'll be exhibiting at will be the Washington Sportsman Show at the Fairgrounds in Puyallup, February 2nd through the 6th. And I hope you'll drop by our Northwestern Outdoors radio booth, because if you do, you'll get a chance to win a Henry Repeating Arms Golden Boy Lever Action Rifle. It is a thing of beauty, and we can't wait to give it away to one lucky attendee. And if you can't make it to the Puyallup Show, don't worry. We've got another Henry Golden Boy we're giving away at the Pacific Northwest Sportsman Show in Portland between February 16th and the 20th. And now it's time for your Sportsman's Warehouse Trivia Question of the Week. The Oregon Trail, it was used by thousands of immigrants wanting to start a new life and heading west in the mid-1800s. The end point of the trail was Oregon City, and you can still see the ruts made by wagons in the trail today across much of eastern and central Oregon. And there are plenty of interpretive stations along the trail off of Interstate 84 worth checking out. Here's your question. Where was the start of the 2,000-mile-long Oregon Oregon Trail. If you know the answer, you know what to do. Go to our Facebook page at Northwestern Outdoors Radio and give us your answer there. Or if you prefer, contact us through our website at northwesternoutdoors.com. And again, let us know where was the start of the Oregon Trail. One lucky person who guesses right wins that $25 gift card we give away every weekend from Sportsman's Warehouse. I'm looking at the clock. We are absolutely out of time. So until next time, do take care. God bless. Stay healthy and make it a point to spend some time outdoors. Outdoors.